Welcome to What the Conspiracy, our tri-weekly show where one of us tries to surprise the other with a conspiracy theory we don't think they've heard of. Sorry, tri-weekly? Is that three times a week or every three weeks? I've never really worked that out. It's like bi-weekly. Does the bi mean we're bisecting the week? Or is it just another word for fortnightly? At which point, why bother saying bi-weekly? But I'm glad you've brought this up because bisecting, sorry, trisecting is the name of the game. It is? Oh yes it is. You see, there's too much reward and not enough risk when it comes to what the conspiracy. So I've decided, especially since we're recording in person this week, to raise the stakes. You know how we start every game with a when, where and what trio of questions? Yes. Well, for each one you get wrong, I'll start trisecting you with the what the conspiracy cleaver. That is a very big knife. Yep, and it cuts through bone like nobody's business. Believe you me, those unsolved murders in Birkenhead proved to be excellent research. There's a lot to unpack here. So if I get the answers wrong to the when, where and what questions, you are going to cut me up. Without a doubt. And what if I get them right? Uh, if I get them right, surely that means I get to trisect you. Well... I mean, otherwise, where's the fun in that, eh? Dr. Dentith, where's the fun in getting things right? And in breaking news, what the conspiracy has been cancelled due to... health and safety issues. Oh, no, it hasn't. I read your book, you magnificent bastard. And if one of you listeners know where that quote came from, there's a free copy of one of my books in it for you. It's from News Radio, isn't it? It's the only thing you quote. Yes. Technically, I've just answered a weird question, which means it's time to get chopping. The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Addison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. I am Josh Edison, they are Dr M Dentith. We are both in Auckland, New Zealand, um, enjoying some of that sweet, sweet lack of social distancing. We were enjoying what? some of that just before the recording started, uh, I have to tell you. Like you wouldn't believe. Uh, are, you feeling, are you feeling an expansion in your sort of general space, what with the travel bubble with Australia now? Not particularly at this stage. No, it doesn't no, really have much of an no, effect. Not really. Although we do have a trans-Tasman travel bubble now. Mm. So if you're a citizen of Aotearoa or Australia or a permanent resident, you can basically travel to and fro each country without having to go through managed isolation or quarantine. Mm. Which actually is good because my brother um, and his wife and their new baby uh, were already planning to come back here, but now they don't have to spend two weeks in quarantine uh, with an infant, so that'll be nice. It will be. It mm. will be. Mm. But that's Nothing not relevant. Like spending two weeks with a baby. No, that's two weeks. Two weeks no, stuck no, in no. a hotel no, room. Just with spending a baby. two weeks with a baby is my personal nightmare. Two weeks in a hotel room, that just sounds like hell. Mm. But that's not relevant uh, to what we're doing today. Um, What's slightly relevant is that you've been you've been on the airwaves again. I understand. I have indeed. I did a forty-five minute pre-record interview for Year Na Pasaran, which is a, it's a show on 3CR, which is a community radio station in Australia, where the hosts talk about white supremacism, 
they're against it, and they That's interview nice people know. who do work adjacent to or about those topics, like myself, and we have a good old chinwag, as I believe they say in Australia, mm -hmm. about throwing some conspiracy theory shrimps on the old white supremacist barbecue. I have no idea whether that actually works, but no. I'm going to stick by it. Yeah, it'll have to do. Now, it's actually playing as we're recording. Oh, so it's both a podcast and also a radio broadcast. So as we're recording this podcast, it's playing in Australia. Once I've actually got a link to the played show, aka the podcast episode, I'll make sure that people can listen in. Mm. And I think that's all we have in the way of, um, of, of housekeeping before we begin. Now, housekeeping? Mm. Uh, oh, God, it's not Tommy Boy. It's No, it is Tommy Boy. It is, Tommy, it is Boy. Tommy Boy. David Spade and yeah. Chris Farley. Yep. yep. David Spade and Chris Farley. It's kind of a shame that Chris Farley died. Mm. Should have been David Spade. That's what I'm saying. David Spade should have died. Well, yes. Do we think Chris Farley would have fared any better in older age? Probably not, in the same way that what's-his-name from the Blues Brothers probably wouldn't have survived particularly well as mm. a comedian. There are certain people who have what we might consider to be slightly outdated or outmoded views, and they remain comedians, mm. or they die young, at which point we forgive them their sins. Mm. Like, everyone seems to have forgotten about the terrible things that Bill Hicks used to say. He did say some terrible things. Yes, yes. terrible, terrible human being, Bill Hicks. Well... I'm know. always happy to speak ill of the dead. Mm. And you'll get the, get the chance in the bonus episode, but more on that later. Um, but for now, I get to kick back and relax. I can, oh, I can no, no, throw away my notes. No, 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 no. There's no relaxing no, on this one. No, I'm going to stretch out. I'm going to make myself comfortable because I don't have to do a damn thing except sit here and listen to you regale me with a conspiracy that I presumably haven't heard of. Well, I hope, I hope you haven't. Hmm. Because otherwise, it could be like last time round, where maybe maybe I knew about the time cube. Mm. Does anyone really know about the time cube, though? Well, the guy who wrote about the time cube. Yeah, but he's dead, so... Is he, though? I mean, is he really dead in cubal time space? Well, yes, maybe he's only dead on one of the faces of the cube, but on the other three he, he yet lives. It's a very Hellraiser-esque situation we're putting the writer of time cube in, into... I think it's what he would have wanted. Also, it does remind me of Cube 2, Hypercube, which is one of those sequels to a great film that I really, really struggled to understand at the best of times. Mm, which I think was the point. Anyway, play that sting, and let's get into it. It's time to play What the Conspiracy. Right, so it's it's my turn in the hot seat, or is it your turn in the hot seat? Well, it's your turn in the hot seat to answer the three questions. Okay, yeah, that's, that's a good start. When do you think this occurred? What do you think occurred? And where do you think it occurred? Now, you can answer those questions in any mm. order. Um, I, 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 don't, I think the ones you've managed to get with so far have sort of been uh, esoteric and British. So I'm going to assume you just, you'll just stay on theme. I think it's going to be... In the 1600s, I think it's going to be in the state of Denmark and it's going to be about a prince who gets told by the ghost of his father that he needs to avenge his death 
and 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 Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, and then so is everyone else, and it's all God a big damn mess. it! You have heard of Hamlet after all. Mm. All right, hold uh, on. Let me just check something here. Uh, just go into my backup file. Uh, oh, all right, it's okay. I've got a backup here. Okay. All right. Uh, so you're completely wrong about this. Good. It takes place in the middle of the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Well, kind of the late middle of the 19th century. It takes place in the UK. Mm-hmm. In fact, it takes place uh, takes place takes place in Notting Hill, not the film. And it's murder slash insurance slash mesmerism. Oh, I do like a bit of mesmerism. Says, have you heard of the Notting Hill mystery? Uh, is that what anyone saw in Hugh Grant in the nineties? Yes. So you have heard of the Notting Hill right. mystery? Well, oh, this is going downhill fast. So yes, imagine, imagine Hugh Grant, but in around about the late 1850s. Right. Dashing, affable, foppish, but really a bad rum character when you really get down to, down to it. Which is what he seems to play in most things now. He's gone mm. from being lovable to a little bit too. He then went through the roguish phase and now he seems to be in the, no, I'm just playing villains now. He was fantastic in Paddington 2 though. Haven't seen it. Oh, you must. Haven't seen Paddington 1. uh, Paddington 1's not bad. Paddington 2 is just, like, it's one of those family family films that the whole family could like, which usually means it's a kid's film with a a few jokes that only the adults will get, but this is just a, a, a genuinely really good film that anyone can enjoy. Well, I cannot I speak actually, highly enough of it. I think we've got to the pop culture phase mm. before we've even got through Just getting the it out of our system. Normally we do that at the end, but mm. we're prevaricating. So the Notting Hill mystery yep. is an investigation into possible insurance fraud which was published in Once a Week magazine. Uh, let me just get the date of when it was published. So it was published in Once a Week between 1862 and 1863, so mm-hmm. it was a, a report published in eight parts, understandably, once a week, starting on the 29th of November, running for two months, going into February of 1863, mm-hmm. and it's the investigation into what appears to be insurance fraud with a really, really weird death which then ends up with hints of the real villain of the piece with a mesmerist inside of us all the entire time. Right. Now, this was an investigation by an insurance investigator by the name of Ralph Henderson, and I'm going to read from bits of the introductory piece in Once a Week magazine, piece by piece, because it really does help set the scene. Mm-hmm. So this is how Ralph leads the first article. My inquiries have had reference to a policy of assurance for £5,000, the maximum amount permitted on the life of the late Madame R by her husband, the Baron R, and bearing date 1st of November 1855. I do like a good Baron. Similar policies were held in insurance companies in Manchester, Liverpool, Edinburgh and Dublin, the whole amounting to £25,000. The dates, the 23rd of December, 1855, the 10th of January, the 25th of January, and the 15th of February, 1856, respectively being in effect almost identical. These companies joined in the instructions under which I have been acting. 
Before entering upon the subject of my investigations, it might as well be to recapitulate the circumstances under which they originated. Of these, the first was the coincidence of dates above noticed, and an apparent desire on the part of the assurer to conceal from each of the various officers the fact of similar policies having been elsewhere simultaneously affected. On examining further into the matter, we were struck with the peculiar conditions under which Madame's R marriage appeared to have taken place, and the relation in which she had formerly stood to the Baron. To these points, therefore, my attention was especially directed, and the facts thus elicited form a very important link in the singular chain of evidence I have enabled to put together. The chief element of suspicion, however, was to be found in the very unusual circumstances attendant on the death of Madame R, especially following so speedily as it did on the assurance for such a large aggregate amount. This lady died suddenly on the 15th of March 1857 from the effects of a powerful acid taken, it is supposed, in her sleep from her husband's laboratory. In the Baron's answers to the usual preliminary inquiries, forwarded for my assistance and herewith returned, there is no admission of any propensity to somnambulism. Shortly, however, after the occurrence had been noticed in the public prints, a gentleman recently lodging in the same house with Baron R gave reason to suspect that in this respect, at least, some concealment had been practiced, and the matter was then placed in my hands. I at once put myself in communication with Mr. Aldridge, the writer of the letter in question. That gentleman's evidence certainly goes to show that, within at least a few months after the date of the latest policy, the Baron was not only himself aware of such a propensity in his wife, but desirous of concealing it from others. Mr. Aldridge's statements are also to a certain extent supported by those of two other witnesses, but unfortunately there are, as will be seen, circumstances calculated to throw considerable doubt upon the whole of this evidence, and especially on that of Mr. Aldridge, from which alone the more important part of the inference is drawn. The same must unfortunately be said with regard to the other parts of the evidence. From his statement, however, in conjunction with other circumstances, I learned enough to induce me to extend my researches to another very singular case, which not long since had given rise to considerable comment. Right, so we have a baron who has a laboratory. It's the best kind of baron. Well, I mean, it is It is the middle of the 19th century and the gentleman scientist is very much in vogue. Mm -hmm. Who has taken out five life insurance policies on his wife and trying not to clue the various companies in that he's taken out identical policies with, with other with, with their competitors or whatever. Uh, the wife has died from ingesting acid. Did, when, when, when they took is this a is this a slightly old-fashioned thing that just means some sort of chemical or are we actually talking an acidic acid? So the story is she was somnambulistic, so she would walk around in her sleep. Mm -hmm. She walks into her hus husband's laboratory, and drinks poison. Right. So she walks into the laboratory, there are a variety of different chemical reagents on the laboratory desk, she picks one flask up, drinks it, it contains acid and she dies. Okay. And, and I assume he's now claiming on these numerous life insurance yeah, policies. so the reason why there's all this investigation is not only he's claimed on one of them, 
but several insurance agencies have gone, oh, uh, he's also claimed on one of ours, because this is a notable story. Someone has died notably, and she is married to a notable mm -hmm. person. So it is the kind of thing that, if you were really thinking it through, people would go, yeah, it's going to come out, there's more than one insurance policy on your wife. Mm. But maybe by that point it's too late. The, the the ink has dried, the signatures have been signed, so they all just have to cough up. And I mean, in many cases, these insurance policies seem to be, in some cases, issued about a year before, although the most recent one is basically within a month of the wife dying. Mm. Yes, I was going to say, it was starting in the late... So th this was being reported on in 1862... Had it happened a little bit before that? Or was the first policy was taken out in 56? Uh, yeah, 55 and the last policy in 56. Mm. Yes, so it all seems... It, I mean, it's, it certainly seems suspicious. It certainly, it has, it, it's the sort of setup you'd expect in a sort of a crime drama. Well, precisely. Mm. And it's also interesting that the story here is that initially when they're talking about the, isn't it unusual that your wife walked into a laboratory and drank acid? The Baron's response is, oh, but my wife has no propensity towards synambulism. This seems quite unusual. And yet someone who was staying in the house is going, no, the Baron's been aware that his wife walks around at night all the time in her sleep. Which does raise questions as to why is the Baron concealing this? So, is the Baron trying to protect his wife's credentials by going, oh, no, she's definitely not somnambulistic because you might think, well, that, that indicates some kind of mental unhealth because that's where the people mm. thought about these things back in the day. Or is he denying it because the somnambulism is a very convenient story and he's covering up the I was able to engineer a situation such that she somnambulistically walked into a space that would cause her harm? Yes, I suppose if it was known that he knew that his wife sleepwalked all the time, then you'd say, well, why didn't you lock up your dangerous chemicals if you knew your wife was doing that? So, yes, yes, it would I be suppose. very suspicious to go, oh, so you created a room of knives for people to walk into in their sleep, and your wife's a sleepwalker in the same way you've got a lot of acid in a bath there, and your wife walks around all the time at night. Maybe you should keep that door locked or closed? Mm. Okay, so I'm assuming the story develops further from there. Well, yes, because as Ralph Henderson intimates, there is a similar case from several years earlier. So let me resume reading mm -hmm. from Ralph's notes. You will no doubt remember that in the autumn of 1856, a gentleman of the name of Anderton was arrested on suspicion of having poisoned his wife and that he committed suicide whilst awaiting the issue of a chemical inquiry into the cause of her death. This inquiry resulted in an acquittal, no traces of the suspected poison being found, and the affair was hushed up as speedily as possible, many of Mr Anderson's connections being of high standing in society, and naturally anxious for the honour of the family. I must however acknowledge the readiness with which, in the interest of justice, I have been furnished by them with every facility for pursuing my inquiries, the results of which are now before you. In reviewing the whole facts, and more especially the series of remarkable coincidences of dates, etc., to which I beg to direct your most particular attention, two alternatives present themselves. In the first, we must altogether ignore a chain of circumstantial evidence so complete and close-fitting in every respect 
as it seems almost impossible to disregard. In the second, we are inevitably led to a conclusion so at variance with all the most firmly established laws of nature as it seems almost equally impossible to accept. The one leaves us precisely at the point from which we started. The other involves the imputation of a series of most horrible and complicated crimes. I like the sound of a series of horrible and complicated crimes, but um, so is he saying... Is he, is he saying the similarities are no coincidence? So is yes, he, is this is another case mm. of someone ingesting poison while sleepwalking. So, yes, I mean, that's, that's a weird thing to happen, I suppose. Is the, is, is the implication that the Baron heard about this case and thought, hey, that's, a, that's something I could try? Or is there some sort of, is he suggesting some sort of mastermind who's organising these somnambulistic poisonings all about the country? What if I told you the Baron's wife had a twin? Then I, yep, okay. That, 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 that's, that's in fitting, I think, with the general tone of where the story's been going. And the twin was stolen at birth. Okay. Eventually marries a mesmerist, and then turns out to be the woman in the case who was poisoned by her husband. I see, okay, the plot thickens. It's one of those ones about where the, with, with the twins who are separated from birth and who yet end up having a whole bunch of nearly identical things happen to them throughout their life. In this case, dying of murder, poisoning, sleep, walk, poison, murder. Also, so the sister becomes a practicing mesmerist herself, which was considered to be a job inappropriate for a woman at the time. And she and her husband shared a mesmerist mentor in common. Do you know who that was? Was it the Baron? It was the Baron. Dang. So, yes. So we have the situation where the Baron teaches someone mesmerism, and then that person, her, his wife, dies mysteriously in a way that the Baron's wife, who happens to be her sister, ends up dying as well. Did they know, oh, if they were identical, I suppose they must have known that they were sisters? Well, I mean, so she was stolen at birth, mm. but eventually, yes, they did meet. Right, okay, so that wasn't, yep, okay. Um, does it turn out that the sisters had pulled a switcheroo, like in that episode of Jonathan Creek, and actually... The one who they thought got killed first wasn't. I mean, if only that were the case. Yeah. I mean, there is there is some discussion about sympathetic illness in this report. So the idea that when the twin sister to the Baron's wife, Madame R, falls ill, Madame R falls ill as well. But that seems like the kind of thing we can actually probably just clock down to coincidence rather than mm. there being some kind of special spectral force that connected both women and life. Although, of course, they were they were connected in death by having almost mm. identical deaths. Now, when we're talking mesmerism, uh, mesmerism, I know, was in, is named after a guy called Mr Mesmer who first popularised it, but is it what we would call these days hypnotism, or is it...? So, this gets it slightly odds because yes, the history of mesmerism and the history of hypnotism are often taken to be one and the same. But hypnotism is meant to be a case where you put someone into a hypnotic state through a variety of different mechanisms, whether it's a, 
a swinging pendulum or listening very calmly to my voice and you'll start to feel sleepy and then you'll give me all the money in your wallet when I click my fingers like this. Now see that's ASMR. I'm just becoming aroused at this point. Actually that's a really good point. Well mesmerism is actually meant to be using your force of will to be able to make people do things. So the mesmerist is kind of classified by that comic book staple of the glowing eyes where you look into someone's eyes that you, you are, are under my under, power yeah, right, un, right. under my control so the mesmerist is meant to be able to induce people into being able to do their bidding without putting them necessarily into a hypnotic state and kind of what's interesting about the history of mesmerism is that because it was studied to a very large extent in the 19th century People are now reappraising some of that, going, well, there's probably something here about dominant personalities and the class structure, which explains why people thought mesmerism worked. Because in certain situations, people who are charismatic and in the right social strata are able to induce people to do things ostensibly against their will. And because of the way society works, you would then explain that by going, oh, they induced me to do this particular thing. Well, so now when we think about it, you'd go, actually, there's a, there's a societal analysis here which explains why you might feel compelled to do someone's work just because they looked into their eyes and going, I am the master and you will obey me. Mm. Nice Doctor Who reference there. Mm. Um, okay, so where does the story go from here then? Things are getting very weirdly coincidental. Well, yes, and so what's interesting is that the husband, Anderton, rather than going to court, ends up committing suicide. So rather than being in the dock, he takes his own life. At which point, Henderson continues with his narrative. I must trouble you with a few words to a point which seems to require explanation. I allude to the apparent prominence I've been compelled to afford to the workings of what is called mesmeric agency. Those indeed, who are so unfortunate as to be the victims of this delusion, would doubtless find in it a simple, though terrible, solution to the mystery we are endeavouring to solve. But while frankly admitting that it was a passage from the Zoist magazine, quoted in the course of the evidence, which first suggested to my mind the only conclusion I have as yet been able to imagine, I beg at the outset most distinctly to state that I would rather admit my own researches to being baffled by an illusory coincidence than lay myself open to the imputation of giving the slightest credit to that impudent imposture. We must not, however, forget that those whose lives have been passed in the deception of others not unfrequently end by deceiving themselves. There is therefore nothing incredible in the idea that the Baron may have given sufficient credence to the statement of the Zoist above mentioned, for the suggestion to his own mind of a design, which by the working of a true, though most mysterious law of nature, may really have been carried out. Such, at least, is the only theory by which I can attempt in any way to elucidate this otherwise unfathomable mystery. What's this Zoist business? Isn't that the planet that the... Immortals came from no, Highlander Two, and I and, think and obviously, find, well, yes. if Highlander Two were a movie that existed, which it well, doesn't. No, I mean if there, if there were only one cut of a Highlander Two, The Quickening, mm. then there may be a version of Highlander: The Quickening that say came out in the eighties, which talks about Planet Zeist. But of course, as we know, Highlander Two was 
never released in its original state, and then it was re-edited in the 90s and finally released. And all of these supposed reference to Planet Zeist have been removed and replaced instead by an almost equally stupid we actually come from the past and we forgot everything about our own individual histories. Mm. And also Michael Ironside. The good old Michael Ironside. Anyway. Very angry man. Mm. In part because I believe... He spent a lot of his roles detoxing from alcoholism, which drives him, but also makes him apparently insufferable. Mm. Now, Michael, if you're listening, please do write in to correct us. We'd love to hear from you, and we'd love to have you on the podcast. Mm, big fans, big fans. We are. Although, I have to say, taking over Roy Schneider's role in the third season of Sequest DSV, probably not your best idea. Mm. Never watched that much. Anyway, back to the mesmerists. So... So I, I guess he's implying that um, if if one were the credulous type who believed in mesmerism, then it would be the Baron, the expert mesmerist, has has compelled these two women to kill themselves, and then compelled the husband to kill himself for the insurance money, I guess, or possibly his own sick thrills. So yeah, so that that is one interpretation of mm. the evidence. The other interpretation is, of course, the. Baron either came up with the plot and the husband of the twin sister carried it out himself and didn't do it particularly well, or the Baron saw his essentially brother-in-law's plot and went, actually, I can do better than that. He didn't get away with what should have been the perfect crime. I will engineer such a crime that I will get away with it. Because as far as we can tell... There's no particular instance of anyone going, it's definitely murder. It appears to be a case of somnambulism where someone ingests poison. Mm. Which could happen, I guess, but it doesn't seem super likely. You seem a little bit incredulous. I'm, I am a little bit incredulous, I'm afraid. Would Would it disappoint you to find out that actually what I've just described to you is Fiction? Uh, a little bit, yeah. But then you might ask, why am I telling you a fictional story? Well, exactly. I mean, we have talked about conspiracy theories and fiction before, but I mean, it is. it does seem like a bit of a cheat, so I'm assuming you have another, another ace up your sleeve. I do, because what we're talking about here with the Notting Hill mystery is not just the first modern detective novel ever written, but it's also arguably one of the most novel, novel detective novels. There's far too many novels there. Most unique modern detective novels ever written because not only was it serialized, but rather than telling a straight narrative, it presented itself as someone presenting evidence to an audience and ending with the, I have no definite conclusion to tell here, other than you must look at the evidence and work out the conclusion yourself. Mm. So it's not just the first modern detective novel, it's also a kind of detective fiction that we see commonly now, but actually is well in advance of itself at the time, and was written by a person by the name of Charles, Fe Charles Felix, whose identity was not known until about 2011. Mm. 
So there's additional mysteries to uncover. To go on. Right, so this this story, the Notting Hill Mystery, was, as I said, told in Once a Week magazine from the 29th of November, 1862, to early 1863. Once a Week magazine was a literary magazine which regularly published fiction. The story itself was initially published anonymously in Once a Week magazine, presumably to keep the idea of the fiction up. So by presenting the Notting Hill Mystery as a report by Ralph Henderson to the insurance company he's been asked to investigate on behalf of, you are basically creating the idea that you're reading a true crime story rather than anything else. Although, given that true crime stories do not exist at this particular point in time, the effect was for people to try to work out what they were re reading, and they described it as playing a game of solitaire. So you just sit there and every week you'd get new evidence being presented in front of you and you'd spend time trying to work out what the dastardly conclusion was. So the story starts out with a quite definite, we think the Baron did it, and the mystery ends up being, but how did he commit what appears to be the perfect crime? So the thing which implicates him in the murder are all the insurance policies, but as far as anyone can tell, his wife really did walk in her sleep and ingest poison. As I say, this was, this is taken to be the first modern detective novel in that it predates the work of Wilkie Collins, who was famous for writing The Moonstone, and that of Emile Gaborat, a French writer who wrote Le Fier Le Rouge, and these were taken to be the first archetypal detective novels and that they feature an amateur detective trying to solve a crime where they go through a process of elucidating things. People do like to point out that Edgar Allan Poe had previously written The Murders of the Rue Morgue, which do feature a detective, but it doesn't really read as, as detective fiction, it reads as an adventure narrative. There's no particular mystery to uncover or solve. You know exactly what went on. It just turns out the hero of the story is a detective rather than anything else. With uh, Collins and Gaborot, you have cases of people actually investigating a crime and coming to a conclusion. With Charles Felix, you actually have something which seems to be much more in the same vein and published several years beforehand. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's a story with, with certainly conspiratorial elements, but um, is, is there more to it? You talk about an anonymous secret writer that, that speaks to a a minor conspiracy to conceal a person's identity. Is there is there more going on here? Yes, so it was written by someone by the name of Charles Felix, and the story had accompanying illustrations by George de Maria. Uh, is that, I, I actually don't know whether I've pronounced that correctly. I, I should always get you to read mm. names out. Uh, who is the grandfather right. of Daphne de Maurier, a very famous writer oh, yeah. of her own elk. So her grandfather was an illustrator. She turned out to be a writer. When the story was republished two years later, because I said initially it was published anonymously, it was published under the name of Charles Felix. And this then led to the mystery of, but who is Charles Felix? So the original serialised story was incredibly well-reviewed, and the resultant book two years later 
It was also very well reviewed as well, even though, as I said, people were very confused as to exactly what they were reading, particularly given that the story is told basically as a series of reports. There are partial letter fragments. It has illustrated maps of locations and routes that people took. There are chemical reports and assays. And the story ends with no definite conclusion. So at no point does Henderson say the Baron committed the crime in this particular way. The reader is basically led to go, it's one or the other. One of the theories seems to go against common sense mesmerism. The other theory seems equally unlikely. Why would someone walk into a lab and just ingest poison of her own will, even if she was suffering from somnambulism? So people became interested into who Charles Felix is. Now, he had written one previous book, which was called The Velvet Lawn, and that was published a year earlier, also as a serial by the firm Sanders and Otley. And they ended up also producing the version of the Notting Hill Mystery three years after the publication of Velvet Lawn. Now, Sanders and Otley was a very, very famous publication house. Uh, they closed in 1869 due to an economic downturn, but prior to that point in time, they were very well respected. There's no record of any correspondence in the archives between the publishers, Sanders and Oatley, and the author. To the Seems point odd. where there's a list made in the Victorian era of fictitious author names where they give you, this is the pseudonym, this is the person the pseudonym applies to, and the only person in that list is one Charles Felix. It's, yeah, okay. So, sorry, the only person in that list is the only that person is, who they didn't yeah, know yeah, yeah. The who, own, the, who own, the real person was. Own, only pseudonym that had never been mm. identified belongs to Charles Felix. Right. Okay, so we have another a mystery on top of a mystery. We do. And indeed, this mystery was not solved until 2011, where people suddenly became really quite interested in the Notting Hill mystery. It was kind of rediscovered. And so Paul Collins ended up doing a whole bunch of investigation into trying to work out who Charles Felix was. And so he's, he's scanning through a whole bunch of archival resources, trying to work out whether anyone has ever mentioned this name. And then one day he discovers from a literary gossip column in the Manchester Times on the 14th of May, 1864, the following line. And he, he notes that it's kind of unusual to think that they used to have literary gossip mm. columns, but in the 1860s, anything goes. And the line goes, it is understood that Velvet Lawn by Charles Felix, the new novel announced by Sanders, Oatley and Company, is by Mr. Charles Warren Adams, now the sole representative of the firm. So it turns out there's no record of any correspondence between Charles Felix and the publishers, Sanders, Oatley and Company, because why would you be corresponding with yourself? Right, okay. Is that... Is, 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 is that kosher to, to be publishing your own works if you're a big publishing company? 
So here's where things get ever so slightly complicated. So it turns out the reason why Charles, uh, that Charles Warren Adams was in charge of Sanders, Oatley and Company was that Sanders and Oatley had died. And so he stepped in and rescued the firm from being dissolved after their death. And this, this occurs in kind of the mid-1860s. Mid now, the firm actually still ends up collapsing in 1869, so it turns out that without the benefit of Sanders and Oatley, who were taken to be very good editors, the publication house just isn't able to ever claw itself back into respectability. So there's a question here as to, yes, is this an untoward thing? Or is Charles Warren and Adam simply trying to no, kind of puff out or fluff out? I don't know why. I, don't know, I actually don't know what word I'm going for. Trying to pad out. Yeah. I don't know why I couldn't think of pad. He was trying to fluff out a publication house. <laughs> We've all just, done that. Just, always fluffing out his yeah. pub, pub, publication house. So yes, maybe he was trying to pad out the resume of work that's being produced and going, well, if I publish my own work and I'm the sole editor of the firm, it does look ever so slightly mysterious. So I'm going to hide mm. this. Kind of like we've got no we've got no work sign. All I you know, all we've got to do is publish our own stuff because we don't have any customers or something. I suppose. But then there's the question as to why didn't he then admit to this after the publication mm. house collapsed? Well, maybe he's just got a thing for secrecy. Maybe that's his maybe that's his fetish. Now, one theory that has been put forward is it that it was his fetish. No, mm. no. So, Charles Warren Adams was actually fairly famous in his own regard as a very prominent English lawyer and anti-vivisectionist. Yeah, well, good for him, I suppose. And because of his anti-vivisection views, he was in an acrimonious state with his wife's family. At Who the were time. a bunch of vivisectionists. Well, I mean, actually I, actually, I don't know whether they were pro-vivisection, but they were certainly anti-anti-vivisection. Because yeah. his wife was Mildred Coleridge of those the Coleridges. And her family so disliked Adams that they libeled him several times, leading to numerous court cases which he consistently won. So not only were they saying bad things about him, they were saying bad things in such a way that he could go, no, mm. no, I'm, uh, I'm going to take you to court for that. My wife's family, I've won that. And so people go, well, maybe due to this acrimonious situation, that's the reason why Adams was keeping quiet about things. Because he didn't want what either the family to use their influence to rubbish his treasured book or they didn't want to know about the money he was making off of it or... Or maybe just trying to make sure they didn't have additional things. Oh, I mean, if you're such a good lawyer and head of the Andy Vivisection lead, why would you need to publish popular fiction? Mm. Now, this story is interesting, but it can only explain why he doesn't cop to being the writer later in life, because he doesn't marry into the Coleridge family 
until 1885, which, according to my math, is significantly after the 1860s. Mm. Like 20 years or something. Yeah. Yeah, mm. I mean, uh, given that the story is initially published back in my notes, 1868, uh, sorry, 1867. Uh, yeah, yeah, almost 20 years. Mm. Almost 20 years. So, and and presumably his wife's family didn't start disliking him until he became involved with his wife. With, I mean, there's no being... there's no record of of them libeling before he gets involved with right. Mildred. Okay, so right, so then that doesn't really explain why he wouldn't have spilled the beans when the company went belly up. Yes, and one thing, this was a this was a popular text. It was it was sort of kind of a bestseller of its age, mm. and yet he remains remarkably mum about the situation throughout his life. So I mean, he doesn't die until about nineteen o one, so he keeps the secret of being the author of the Notting Hill mystery for a long time, and there's a very big question as to but why did he do it, which ends up being as mysterious as whether the ba ba Baronar killed his wife or whether it was just a messy coincidence after all. Mm. So we have, okay, so we have parallel situations then. We have the fictional situation, which comes to no clear, clear conclusion, and then the real-life situation, which is similar. Is there anything add, anything to add on to that, or have we reached the, reached the limit of what we know? We have basically reached the limit of what we know. So we have the very first modern detective novel, which is a po a popular success. It ends up going into print, being published by the author under an assumed name through a, at that time, respectable publication house. There's a mystery as to why he never admits authorship. There's also a question as to whether the illustrator ever knew exactly who he was illustrating work for. So there's also a question of the complicity of the editors of Once a Week magazine. Were they aware who the author of the piece was? There is some indication they might have done. So I said, in 2011, it turns out Paul Collins basically solves the mystery. Who is Charles Warren Adams? And then, of course, like many things, people go, oh, uh, by the way, we've got some prior art, because now that we know what we're looking for... We actually can find out that someone by the name of William Buckley, who wrote an article on the history of Once a Week magazine, actually worked out that Charles Felix was Charles Warren Adams back in 1952, but that was published in a journal article that until recently had never been digitised and no one knew existed. Mm. So basically they'd worked out who he was 60 years prior, but no one had actually noticed this. And we all end, yes, it's not entirely clear where Buckley got that in, that information from. He was doing a history of Once a Week magazine. Maybe there was some indication in the files that the editors knew, or maybe he had access to additional information which allowed him to make an inference the most likely person is. Mm. Most interesting. Have we have we come to the end of the tale, then? We have indeed. Both tales. Well, there we go. It had twists and turns. So, I mean... The, the the fact that the initial story did keep coming up with, with twists and turns that were worthy of a work of fiction, maybe that should have clued me in at the start. Yes, and I but must admit, I 
by a live omission. So I talked about how a, a report was published in Once a Week magazine. Didn't actually mention that Once a Week magazine was a literary mm. venue. I did ever so slightly edit out some references in the letter about the way that Henderson is quite obviously writing for insurance adjusters rather than a general audience. But by and large, it's a fairly interesting story in its own Ooh. right, because the mystery of the author of the very first bit of modern detective fiction is itself a mystery worthy of detective fiction itself. Mm. This would be the point where you go, and would you be surprised to find all of this is fiction too? <gasps> but I'm not making no. that jump. Yep, no, I'm glad you don't. This is not a Christopher Nolan film. No, no. Or at least not and yet. Not as far as we know. No, precisely. Well, mm. I mean, actually, it kind of depends on whether, on whether you think the audio is good or bad. Mm. If the audio is bad, it's definitely a Christopher Nolan film. Mm. Mm. Um, well, there we have it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you this. It was um, a captivating enough tale that I completely forgot to go. Every time you brought in one of those new revelations, which shows how must how 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 enthralled I was. Oh, or it could be my mesmeric agency. Possibly you mesmerized me. Yeah. Precisely. Had you transfixed with my eyes the entire mm. time, meaning that you were never able to look away to work out where the button was. That's where it is. Precisely. Mm. And we know how to press it. Well, very good. So there we go, the Notting Hill Mysteries. Was that the name of this fictional story? It is, yes. And actually, so what's interesting is after 2011, where Paul Collins writes this book, basically working out exactly what was going on with it, the British Crime Library reissues the book and people start reading it again and they go, actually, it's actually incredibly clever narrative with a little bit of racism, I left out the entire bit about gypsies. Right, yeah. But they say the really interesting thing about it is the way it's presented. So it is presented as a series of reports where the reader is meant to make judgment. Henderson throughout is going, look, what I'm about to tell you seems really weird, and I ask you to keep an open mind about this, but it never at any point does he say this is the way you should interpret the evidence. And you kind of have to sit down and look at reports and maps and try to work out what you think occurred because the narrator is never going to state definit definitively which conclusion you should draw from the evidence. Mm. Yes, if that happened today, obviously, the internet would be aflame with with all the different theories. Well, I mean, but it also possibly... it's the kind of thing you'd expect with an alternate reality game these days. Mm. Just being given a whole bunch of evidence leading you to look up more evidence and things. You could imagine that if, if Charles Warren Adams was writing this today, it would be a bunch of different websites and you'd end up reading one and then working out which one to go to and then you'd release new bits and pieces. Or those those phone games, which are very popular at the mo mo moment, where you it, the whole premise is you've been given someone else's phone, oh, right. and you have to yeah. dig through mm. the phone to find evidence of exactly what happened to that particular person. It's the same kind of thing. It's actually, for the first example of the genre, incredibly prescient. 
Do we know, was there a fan base at the time? Were, it was, were people it was, writing yeah. about their, their particular theories of which way they thought the the story went? Did the so, Baron do it or didn't he? So, yes, I mean, I believe there was a letters page in Once mm -hmm. a Week, so there were people enjoying the rose. It's also, because the way it was written, you could also imagine that if you didn't know Once a Week magazine was a literary magazine, you might think you're reading an actual series of reports. So it does have that kind of weird... War of the World broadcast thing, mm. which is often misunderstood by people, given lots of people claim that people took that seriously and did things where actually the evidence is not particularly good that anyone took the War of the Worlds broadcast as being an actual broadcast. But at the same time, it was convincing enough that you could be lured into the illusion of mm. thinking you were listening to a news broadcast. Mm. Well, there we go. Another another stirring tale of conspiracy and intrigue. Indeed. So mm. that's another exciting episode of What the Conspiracy. I think it is. So I suppose we should just start cleaving. Well, uh, did I get... Oh, I got everything wrong, didn't I? That's you did. So... And... And also... Well, that's the end for me. It's true. Uh, you are literally end. now legless and you don't even drink. I don't. I'm a, I'm a third the man I used to be. I mean, that's been true for years. Yeah, I suppose. Anyway, anyway, that is the end of this episode, but it's not the end for uh, those loveliest of people, our own patrons. And they truly have... are the greatest. Oh, they are. The most radiant, the most luminous, mm. to the point where it's actually quite blinding how luminous our patrons mm. are. Effulgent. I mean, you frankly, if the sun goes out, we could launch our patrons into space and they would provide all the light a person needs. Unfortunately, that would mean the patrons would die because you might glow, but you can't breathe in space. No. I'm sorry, but no. that's a sacrifice you might have mm. to make if the sun goes out. But you're, you're our patrons. You're such wonderful people that you're likely to be willing to make that sacrifice. And there's an ant crawling on our recording deck. I'll leave the poor thing alone. Like get into the internals, and then God knows what might happen oh, to us. Like, like in Phase Four. Oh, I haven't watched that in That's ages. That's an old, old science fiction film. That one. Yeah. I saw it. Was like broadcast during the day one day many years ago, back when broadcast television. It's a giant ant film for those people. No, it's a, it's a small, it's a space super intelligent space ant. Oh film. no, you're right. It is. It's actually about hives, isn't it? Mm. It's not the. It, it's not it. It's, it's about, not, not yeah. them. No. It's, yeah. yeah. It's it's about ants become super intelligent because of radiation from space or something and sabotage scientists gear and anything. But that has nothing to do with the bonus episode. This uh, this week um, we're going to talk about going to talk about the royals because uh, there was a royal funeral recently. That, that's that's all the excuse we need. Um, we'll never be royals. Ooh. See, having grown up in Devonport, where Lord comes mm. from. There are many issues I have with the lyrics well, in that yes. first album. Yes, no, hers was not a was not a deprived upbringing. Not at all. If, if that was, the I mean, I I I know where her mother's house is. Yeah. It's it's a very very fancy big house. Mm. Now, admittedly, uh, growing up in the nineties, Devonport was not as expensive as it was in the eighties, but it was still incredibly expensive. Mm. Anyway, we're not here to critique the works of Ella Yelich. O'Connor? Maybe. I can't remember her name. Doesn't matter. 
We're not talking about her, we're talking about the, the, the royal royals. Um, and j just a general rundown of, of royal-themed conspiracy theories. There's some good ones. There's all, we'll, we'll cover the classics, but there's a few in there that you might not have heard of. Uh, and if you'd like to hear them, uh, then you'll then you'll you'll jolly well want to become a patron unless you're you an indeed. Uh, so if you want to become a patron, go to patreon.com and look for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy, and then Robert's your father's brother. No, Bob's my uncle, mm, and Fanny's my aunt. Yes, it's actually true. I did mm. have an aunt Fanny and an uncle Bob? Oh, I had a grandma Doris, but then she died, as grandparents do, as indeed. The grandfather of Princes William and Harry just did, which is why we're going to be talking about that sort of stuff. Well, that almost worked. Mm, mm. Um, so Sorry think, to hear about your your dead grandparents. Well, that was that, 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 that was some time ago, so that's all right. Yeah, but you've only just come out with that painful experience to okay. me now. I mean, she made it to almost 91, so that's not bad. Should have used a better quality of gas. Possibly. Um, so, I think... I think we better just draw a line under this and the, 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 the Notting Hill mystery, which didn't even involve Julia Roberts or Reese Efans in his underpants. Um, we need more Reese Efans in his underwear. Mm. Uh, yes, draw a line under that. Stop this episode. Start recording a bonus episode about the royals uh, and simply say to those of you listening to this, to whom we are eternally grateful also, just because you're our audience and we kind of need one of those, um, I'll just say goodbye. And I'll say toodly woo do ba do do woo. I'm going away from you a bit, I think. The podcaster's guide to the conspiracy is Josh Addison and me, Dr. MRX Dentith. You can contact us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com and please do consider supporting the podcast via our Patreon. And remember, they're coming to get you, Barbara.